Good morning once again. The scripture passage Adriana read for us is a Palm Sunday passage. Yes, it's Luke's account and doesn't even mention palm branches. Luke chose not to mention the palm branches. He only said that they were cloaks that people laid on the ground. Uh, A cloak is like a coat. The other gospel accounts tell us that the people laid down palm branches too. And thank goodness they did. Could you imagine if instead of Palm Sunday, we had to call it Cloak Sunday? Yes, that's a bit odd, right? Well, before we dive in, let's begin in prayer. Father in heaven, we gather from distant places all over this globe this morning to hear from you. And this Palm Sunday scripture passage is just what we need to meditate upon today. We need to soak in the beautiful truths that we uncover in these verses. Help us to see your Son, our Lord, in all his royal splendor. By your Holy Spirit's presence in our lives, press into our souls the hope and the comfort that is ours in Christ this Palm Sunday. Meet us where we are and lift us up to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you know what a flashbang is? It's a special grenade used in combat or by SWAT teams. It's not a grenade that injures with fragments. No, when it explodes, it makes a giant flash of light and then goes bang. So, hence the term flashbang. Before entering a hostile building, soldiers will toss one in a window, and when it goes flashbang, everyone in the room is instantly awakened, and life gets real as the door gets busted down. This passage in Luke 19 is like that, or at least it's meant to be like that. Things in Jerusalem were dark spiritually. The Jewish leaders who were supposed to be lovingly watching over God's flock, were opposing God by their heartless disregard for God and God's people. And they had been keeping an eye on some young teacher from Nazareth, a man named Jesus, that all the crowd went out to see. But they had thought that they had banished Jesus to the countryside for good. But then, flashbang. Here he comes, riding down the Mount of Olives with thousands along the way going crazy. And then up the hill towards the city gates he rides. He rides. Things are, things are about to get all out of whack. The, the Son of God is kicking down the door and coming in. And so seen in, in this light, Palm Sunday is meant to be more than a happy holiday for the people of God. Palm Sunday is meant to expose the darkness around us, the sinfulness all around us, our world's failings in our own failings. Palm Sunday is meant to be a flashbang for our souls so that we would genuinely welcome Christ as our King and Lord, that we would weep like Christ, for this world that has rejected God 
wholesale, that we would cry out for cleansing so that we can experience the washing of our souls that only Jesus can give. I don't know about you, but I need Palm Sunday to be a a flashbang. Yes, this coronavirus is a huge flashbang for the world, and yes, I believe God will use it for his glory as hundreds of thousands turn in faith. But we need Palm Sunday because it addresses issues far deeper and far longer lasting than, yes, even a worldwide pandemic. We need Palm Sunday to point out the darkness in which we live and to point us to Christ, the only King who can safely deliver us for all eternity. And so this morning, we must recognize Christ the King and let him kick down the door of our hearts. As we dig into this Psalm, uh, Palm Sunday passage, we will divide our sermon into three parts. We will look first at the welcome, and then the weeping, and the washing. The welcome, the weeping, and the washing. First, the welcome. We see the welcome in verses 28 through 40. Most translations call this the triumphal entry, but, but Jesus doesn't enter Jerusalem in this section. Perhaps triumphal approach would be better. Verse 28 shows us that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He's, he's traveling there. He's been traveling there for a while, but, but now he's getting close. And, and he, he arrives at Bethpage and, and Bethany. These were neighboring towns. Now, it's kind of weird, all right? Uh, Bethpage means house of unripe figs. You can read Mark chapter 11 and find out why it's named House of Unripe Figs. And Bethany means House of Figs. Now, (laughs) crazy, huh? Try to imagine the high school rivalries between these two neighboring towns. Go House of Unripe Figs, beat them. No, we're the House of Figs. We're going to pluck you real bad. All right, that was kind of weird. I get it. I know. And no one's laughing because there's no one here to laugh. Maybe you're laughing at home at me. Anyway, between these two towns, which are only a couple miles away, is a small mountain range. And so Jesus and his large band of disciples, they wind their way up the backside of what is called the Mount of Olives. It overlooks Jerusalem. At the base of the Mount of Olives is, is the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus will be there later in the week praying. On this day, Jesus travels down the Mount of Olives, passes Gethsemane, and rides up and enters Jerusalem. Now, it is what happens along the way that interests us now. At one point, Jesus tells two of his disciples to go into the village, and there they will find a cult. Now, Matthew's gospel adds a little more detail. It's not a cult of a horse. This is no little stallion. No, it is a young donkey, never ridden. Just a little guy. <laughs> Jesus told him to go into the town where they would find this cult. And if anybody asks why you were taking it, tell them the Lord has need of it. So pause here. Jesus is telling them something before it happens. He knows the whereabouts of a little donkey and some men. This is where the flashbang that went off want, wants you to pause and, and let the the gravity sink in. Jesus, Jesus isn't saying, 
take the Sunrise Highway into Southampton and you will find a 7-Eleven on your right. Go in and ask the owner for a Slurpee. Jesus is seeing into the future. Better yet, he is in absolute control over the present. Jesus' divinity is what's on display. For Jesus, looking into the future is like you and me seeing what's going on around us in the present. Now, the disciples are caught red-handed untying the colt. And the owners ask, understandably, why are you untying the colt? The disciples say exactly what Jesus told them to say. The Lord has need of it. It's interesting, one commentator points out that, that this looks more like a password exchange. Um, what's the password? The Lord has need of it. The disciples return with the small donkey. And what do they do? They make a royal saddle for Jesus out of their cloaks, and they lifted Jesus on and put him on the colt. Now, a normal person would have ridden bareback, but the disciples give Jesus the royal treatment he deserves by, by turning their cloaks into a saddle, and they set Jesus on the donkey. Now, here are a couple of insights for us to consider. First, think about this. When was the last time Jesus ever needed anything? Think about it. Jesus had nothing. He carried no money with him. Shortly, he will be in the city, and he will have to ask for someone's, someone else's coin to make a point about giving unto God what is God and unto Caesar what is Caesar. Jesus hardly had any possessions of his, of his own, just a cloak on his back and some sandals. Once he said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, speaking of himself. Now here's where the light bulbs are to go off. Think about this. For his entire life, Jesus had nothing but the cloak on his back, and he never asked for anything for his personal enjoyment. But now, in what he knows as his last week of life, at least life as he knew it then, he asked for a colt on which to ride in to Jerusalem. Think this through. Jesus is taking into possession something that is rightfully already his. How so? Well, as our recent study in Colossians has made clear that we understand that by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, and all things were created through him and for him. Think about it. This cult, this creature, was created by Jesus, for Jesus. It is to be used for his glory, along with everything else in the universe. It's, it's the personal property of Jesus. Now, think of the response of the owners of the cult. They did not claim it as their own, but they offered it for the service of their king. Knowing that their Lord had need was all they needed to know. I think this should challenge us today. Oh, that we would have the same attitude that all we possess really belongs to our Lord, who is our rightful king. It is all for his glory. And so will we, will we be a people who always consider, is the Lord saying he has need of it? Are we willing to let, the, let King Jesus stake his claim on all we own? Are we willing to part with his royal property, like those owners of that cult. 
The owners of the cult welcomed Jesus as king, and they delighted that the king would use their cult to travel into the city. Moving along, we see that the disciples and the others spread their cloaks on the ground. Here's what they're communicating by laying out their cloaks. They are paying homage to Jesus' royalty. Laying out cloaks and palm branches was an ancient way of welcoming a king. And so they were, they were saying, Jesus, you are our king. You are majestic, worthy of honor. This was likely a huge crowd. How do we know? Well, well, pilgrims from all over were traveling the same roads to celebrate the Passover later in the week. And picture the scene. If, if you're at the gates of Jerusalem and you look out and you see the Mount of Olives across the Kidron River and a mass of people laying down their garments for Jesus Jesus' donkey to walk on. All the way down, Jesus comes. And then he crosses the river. And then into Jerusalem, the king's city. What a welcome. And what were they doing on the mountain as they watched Jesus descend towards the city? Look at the beginning of... Look at the beginning uh, of verse 37. He says... As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The people understand something of infinite importance. God's Messiah King has finally come. They proclaim that attached to King Jesus is peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Please know this. They welcomed Jesus as their king. They understood that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem to be their king. Flash. Bang. Imagine their joy. There he is, kids. Look, God has finally brought us the Messiah King. What they fail to understand, though, is far more critical than what they understood. They failed to grasp just what kind of king Jesus was going to be. Instead of riding in in power on a mighty war horse, Jesus comes in a gentleness he comes in gentleness and in humility on a on a donkey and a and a tiny one at that picture his knees all bent up as he keeps his toes from from hitting the ground and we see that trouble is already brewing because not everyone is rejoicing look at verse 39 And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. These these Pharisees will continue their plot to to, to put an end to the life of Jesus. By By the end of the week, they will have all of Jerusalem, except for a few souls, crying out, Crucify, crucify. My friends, this is, this is a warning for us. Our affections are often fickle, are they not? We, we wanted Jesus to be king in our lives so long as he is the kind of king we want. 
But are we willing to let him be king over our souls? A king who lays down his own life to die in our place so that we can be welcomed into his kingdom. So that is the welcome. Tens of thousands welcome Jesus as king on his, on his way into Jerusalem, but he still hasn't stepped foot into the city. In fact, as his donkey makes its way up the winding road to the gates of Jerusalem, the city is blocked from view. But there's a point where Jesus on his donkey, as he, as, he, as he moves up the path, there's a point where the city comes in view. And instead of rejoicing, what does Jesus do? My friends, he weeps. And that's our next point, the weeping. Why does Jesus stop when he sees Jerusalem and begin to weep? Some think, it must be because he knew he was about to die. So he is weeping for himself. But no, he isn't weeping for himself. He is weeping over the city and what he knows is going to happen. They will reject the Son of God who came to save them. Look at our text again, verses 41 through 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus weeps for what he knows is going to happen. The people who have all the special advantages of God's presence and the temple and the prophets and the law, all the tools to make sense of what God is now doing in their midst, they will take it all in and as a whole, as a nation, reject the Son of God in the time of his visitation. Henry Nouwen, who some of you are familiar with, um, summarizes well what is going on when he writes, Jesus went to Jerusalem to announce the good news to the people of that city. And Jesus knew that he was going to put a choice before them. Will you be my disciple or will you be my executioner? There is no middle ground here. Jesus went to Jerusalem to put people in a situation where they had to say yes or no. And listen, my friends, this, this choice remains for us all to this very day. Will we see and follow Christ the King, or will we say no? For us this Palm Sunday and for this Holy Week to come, it is a time for us all to allow that flashbang grenade in our lives to awaken us. And so please take time this week to look at your Lord. He, he leaps, he, he, excuse me, he, he weeps over all the right things, right? He weeps not over your 401k. He weeps not over your loss of freedom. He weeps over the fact that many, many 
will witness him go to the cross for their sins and in the end reject him. Also, he doesn't weep because he has been rejected. My friends, Jesus can handle rejection. He weeps because people whose greatest need is Christ and the cross will in the end say, meh, poor guy, and then go on with their lives. The inhabitants of Jerusalem would eventually move on from the day in which Jesus was ordered to be crucified. They will get on from the times in which scores of believers got the city all in a frenzy, saying how this Jesus rose from the dead. Eventually, it'll all die down, and their lives will get back to how they enjoyed them before. But Jesus warns, a day of judgment will come. This is what Jesus prophesied about. Look at verses 43 and 44. He says, for, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Many of you know this, but in 70 AD, what Jesus predicted came true. The Roman general Titus surrounded the city and besieged it. Eventually, they overran the city, tearing down every stone of its walls to the ground, and they destroyed the temple, and the inhabitants fled for the hills. Jesus makes it clear that this was going to be a form of, of divine justice. Jesus is wailing with love over this city. His soul was grieved over the rejection of his people. He, he was their rightful king. They rejected him in the end. And now they will face judgment. Though the people are now all happy and rejoicing, Jesus says they are blind and cannot really see. Verse 42. Would that you... Even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. This weeping of Jesus is meant to awaken us. Luke wants his readers to see two important ways. First, those who haven't yet trusted in Christ as their king, well, now's the time. Don't be blind like the half-hearted celebrants. Let, let their example of failure help you to triumph in Christ. Turn to him now. Bow your knee to him as your Savior and your King. And second, for those who have trusted in Christ, Luke, Luke's retelling of the story of Jesus' weeping is a wake-up call too. Christ cares deeply for all people. As J.C. Ryle writes, he cares for all people. His heart is wide enough to take an interest in all mankind. His compassion extends to every man, woman, and child on earth. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Ryle goes on to say, Hardened sinners are fond of making excuses for their conduct, but they will never be able to say that Christ was not merciful and was not ready to save. And so we know but a little of true Christianity if we do not feel a deep 
concern about the souls of unbelieving people. Ryle goes on and, and he says, listen, a lazy indifference about the spiritual state of others may doubtless save us much trouble. What's he saying? Well, if, if we care little for the spiritual state of others, we, we won't have too much trouble in life. Things will go on, well, lukewarmingly well. But my friends, this is not the attitude of our Lord. He went to great trouble to proclaim the gospel and call people to repentance and faith. He cared infinitely as to whether people were going to heaven or going to hell. And so he, he wept as the crowds rejoiced all around him. Jesus wept. Christian, let's take time this week right now to weep. Let's weep over our lack of interest in the spiritual state of others. Weep over our, our greater concern for when the movie theaters and restaurants open up rather than weeping over whether our neighbors' hearts and minds will open up to Christ. And may we weep in our prayers as we cry out this week, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, save them. And use me to show them Christ. So we've looked at the welcome and we've looked at the weeping. Now let's look at the washing. This last section is typically called what? The cleansing of the temple. But I've chosen to call it the washing because, well, washing starts with W and it goes well with welcome and weeping. Pretty clever of me, huh? Finally, in verse 45, we see that Jesus has now entered Jerusalem. And, and where was the first place he went? Shake Shack? Yankee Stadium? No, he went to his father's house, the temple. Think about what the temple was and the, and the purpose it served. The temple was God's gift to his people, a place where God came down, a place of mercy and, and atonement and and healing, and not, and not just for the Jews, but for all the nations. We read in Isaiah 56, verse 7, of God's intentions for his temple. We read, For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. See, the temple was designed by God with three courts, the outer of which was called the court of the Gentiles. It was a place where those who were from other lands uh, could come and draw near to God, that they could pray to God and experience conversion and be brought into the covenant people of faith. And, and now Jesus enters the temple and he, he looks around and a, and a holy anger overcomes him. That, that's what we see in the other Gospels. It, it is anger. Now, not the anger of a bully out of control. It's a righteous anger, like the anger people felt towards Bernie Madoff, who swindled millions from people's retirement accounts. This anger of Jesus is settled and pure and right and good, but it is anger nonetheless. Look, look again at verse 45 and 46, what he does. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Luke tells us 
he began to drive out those who were selling in the temple. The Greek word translated with drive out is ekbalo. It's the same Greek word used when Jesus cast out demons. Now, why cast people out? Jesus washed the temple of the priests, got them out of there because they had turned the place um, they had turned the place of people's prayers into a place of personal profit. Think about it. This week, this one week leading up to the Passover was the most profitable time of year, like, like Black Friday for Amazon. As tens of thousands of worshipers entered Jerusalem for the Passover, they would all need an animal for their sacrifice. And instead of dragging a goat for five days, um, they would bring Roman coins and, and they would buy an animal locally. Also, the, the law commanded a yearly half-shekel temple tax. It's in Scripture. And, and so the worshipers would need to exchange their Roman currency for temple currency. So, so at least understand this. The, the problem isn't that there were animals in Jerusalem that worshipers could purchase or that there was a way to convert Roman currency into half-shekels. The problem was that the priests were doing it and it was being done inside the temple courts. In his commentary on um, Luke's gospel, David Gooding provides a helpful summary. He writes, Somebody, of course, had to sell the required sheep and birds to would-be worshipers. But these sales should have been left to secular trade, unassociated with the sacred precincts and activities of the temple. For the temple authorities not only to allow this training to go on in the temple courts but to profit unduly from the sales themselves was not only inappropriate it was scandalous instead of being priestly intermediaries to help men find worship and be blessed by god they had become middlemen turning their priesthood into a commercial monopoly in order to make financial profit out of men's quest for God. Thus they robbed men, listen, for it is difficult to experience the grace of God and the free gift of his salvation through the services of men bent on making money out of one's spiritual need. They also robbed God, treating his word and sacraments as though they were stock and trade of their business and treating God's people not as God's possession to be developed for God's enjoyment, but as a market to which they, as the professionals, had exclusive rights. Makes sense now, doesn't it? My friends, the very people God had ordained to care for and shepherd his people had become a den of robbers. And this den of robbers wanted Jesus dead. Dead. But now is not the right time. There's people in the temple that are sitting and listening and, and soaking in every word of Jesus. These will be the ones who in the end come to believe. Um, but soon, these, this den of robbers will get their wish. Jesus' cleansing the temple, his washing it clean, 
points us to two things to consider today. Jesus has a passion for the lost. For those who are out on the outside of the community of faith, he has, a, he has a passion for the poor and for justice and for worshiping God with a sincere heart. As Phil Riken points out, Jesus has a passion for making the life of faith the main business of life. So what is your passion? What is the main business of your life? This week, as we lead up to Good Friday and Easter, take time to wash yourself of anything that hinders your love and devotion to Christ. Grace Church, let's make Christ the main business of our lives. The other thing this temple cleansing points out uh, to us is, is Good Friday. With this flashbang of Palm Sunday, Jesus washes the temple clean, but in a few days, he will make this temple that he just cleaned obsolete this temple had served its purpose for roughly a thousand years but now the time has come for jesus to do what the temple couldn't do jesus replaces the temple with his own body god in his grace temporarily allowed the blood of bulls and sheep to make atonement for sin and fellowship with god but it had to be done over and over and over and the consciousness of the of the worshiper was never fully cleansed because they knew that that the blood of a bull a bull or a goat really in the end couldn't unless it's by god's grace um cover a human being's sin but now now what we see is is a permanent atonement has come it's God's Son, His blood. And His blood alone provides the permanent atonement our souls need. And so, Grace Church, your King has come. Let us delight in Christ, the King, as He has kicked down the doors of our hearts. And so, as we wrap up, Take time to allow Palm Sunday to be a flashbang in your life. May it arouse you to your senses and, and may it shine the light of God's grace into your life. And see Jesus in royal humility approach you in meekness and love. Welcome him as your king. And become one who weeps with Jesus over the things for which Jesus weeps. And come to Christ your King and your Savior and be washed of your sins by his mercy and grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's true. You have given us a lasting and permanent peace. This son of yours who entered as the royal king of Jerusalem and welcomed by just a few is none other than king over all creation. And so Jesus, we bow our hearts to you right now. We confess our absolute need for you. We thank you that you have opened up our eyes that we can see and our hearts that we can believe that we may welcome you into our lives. And we, we want to be like you, Christ. We want to be one who weeps 
over the brokenness around us, over people who hear the good news and yet still reject you. Help us to be people who bring this message and use us to help others come into your kingdom. And we thank you that you've washed our sins. This week we'll meditate more and more upon your kindness and your mercy and your grace and of course upon our great need and your provision. We thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.